welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode number 136, 136. So, as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com. Or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean, which is the platform that we create this on. So there are a lot of things to talk about today. And, uh, you know, one of them is, of course, you know, the Ukraine. I guess they don't really like you calling it the Ukraine anymore. It's really called Ukraine. But it's just dominating the news and everything. And now there's accusations of war crimes and there's more virtue signaling and all kinds of things going on but one of the things you know I did I did go into a deal of hey if you're a professional what would you take over there and why it's a bad idea to go over there well another another real reason that it's a bad idea is just before this thing started and and just after it started you remember the Ukrainian government was handing out weapons to everyone and they were opened up police stations and military bases and you know if you were Ukrainian you could go in there and get a AK-74 or AK-47 or something else I suppose and you know they had the cute little pictures of the 80 year old grannies with an AK and all this well what that did was create in certainly in Moscow's eyes it created thousands of unlawful or illegal combatants um, and certainly any foreigner who's over there is going to be an unlawful or illegal combatant. Now, there's all kinds of um, parts of the Geneva Conventions and the Hague Convention, and they actually put a, uh, you know, some, some additions to that in 1989 about mercenaries and you know there's a whole bunch of things of who's who gets Geneva Convention protection and who doesn't and what that protection protection really is in some cases it's like hey if they catch you you're an English speaker um, you've got an AK and you don't have a uniform that identifies you as Ukrainian guess what you're an illegal or unlawful combatant and they could just hold a summary trial basically right there and execute you um, they can do that. Uh, the law has got a lot of, it's very, very general about what they're supposed to do. So you're going to find that a lot of these accusations of war crimes are going to be couched into, the into well, these were illegal combatants or they were sheltering or aiding illegal combatants, thus becoming illegal combatants themselves and exposing themselves to the risk and all the rest of it. You know, believe me, this just could not get uglier when you're talking about people on the ground and, you know, how all of this is playing out. This this is as ugly as it gets. It's at least as ugly, and I think it's even worse, than, you know, Yugoslavia in the 90s. Um, this is bad, bad business. And, uh, you know, here we have the fools. And the one MSNBC guy, his name is Malcolm Nance, and he apparently resigned from the network so he could go fight in the Ukrainian Foreign Legion. 
who are going to be, if they get grabbed by the Russians, they're going to be nabbed as mercenaries and in violation of the Geneva Conventions. But anyway, <clears throat> this guy is a, a retired Navy crypto guy. Okay, think about radios and codes and frequencies and, and things like that. You know, cryptologist, coding and decoding messages and all that. So that's what he is. Um, now, I don't know about you, but if I'm about to enter a ground combat situation, um, one of the last guys, and I, and I had a bunch of prior service guys in front of me, the last guy I would pick to to want to cover me or to want to you know, be around somebody who knows what they're doing, it's a Navy crypto guy. Uh, he may be good with all that other stuff, but I just don't see where he's going to be an expert in ground combat or have any experience or anything. And there are a lot of people in the military who are like that. You know, one of the things I like about the Marines is, you know, they used to have this this ethic that everyone was a rifleman first and then you did your job you know but you were still a rifleman and you were still expected to be a rifleman now how successful that is in real practice i i don't know and in practicality but at least they were thinking that way but i'm, I'm telling you that there are people who are in the military who do not routinely qualify with weapons who do not participate in any kind of small unit tactics or that type of training and who are not experts in land warfare of any kind and I would I would just say that broadly I would put Navy crypto guys in that in that uh, uh, basket you know probably you know Air Force uh, has got some guys like that they do some other very specific and very necessary job but they're not um, they're not the guys to go to um, th this is not these are not GI Joes I mean these guys are not GI Joe so don't don't think that they have some kind of magical trove of of training and information that they can draw on because they don't and uh, you know what's gonna happen to this guy and of course this guy's about 60 years old he's he is husky meaning he's overweight um, you know this guy this guy's no use in ground combat ground combat is a young man's game there's a reason why most infantrymen are about, you know, in their 20s. And, you know, and that's the officers and the NCOs, the guys who really do the work at company and platoon level. They, they, they have very few guys over the age of 30. And there's a reason for that. So a guy who's double that age um, is particularly not very useful. So, you know, th this is just ridiculousness. And if this guy even gets near combat, which I doubt he will, but if he does, um, I think something very bad is going to happen because he is not small, he is not fast, and he does not have the skills. So he he is going to be a bullet magnet. Um, you know, he, he this is just this is just bad. And you know what? He needs to you know go back home. And you know, like I said, if you really want to help anybody humanitarian aid is the thing to do this this virtue signaling of i'm gonna go fight is uh, ridiculous it is it is ugly right now and it's about to get a lot uglier i can tell you that straight up front and one of the things that's going to get uglier is uh a lot of people are, are kind of giggling about ha 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 the russians lost their flagship in the black sea but what they're not giggling about because they haven't thought of it is you know clearly that ship was carrying nuclear weapons and nobody really wants to admit or talk about or I don't even think they've thought about it 
and and you can say well how do you know this you know you're not over there how do you know well I do know that the Slava class cruisers which the Moskva was actually the lead ship it was actually called the Slava first and Slava means glory Moskva means Moscow so it changed from the cruiser glory to the you know like we call you know ships after cities and things you know USS Sacramento or something so um, you know this ship was designed for a specific mission back in the 1980s and that was to engage um, NATO predominantly United States but NATO naval aircraft carrier battle groups and surface action groups so it's it's a fairly small ship it's like 14,000 tons I think and um, you know what it's supposed to do is dash into within its missile range launch a nuclear missile and either have it explode in the, the close vicinity of or actually hit an aircraft carrier and you know that would not only take out the carrier obviously but it would also wipe out a bunch of the escort ships so that's what it's designed to do now obviously it's not going to do that with conventional explosives you know it's not gonna even if the things weigh four or five thousand pounds which they don't because they're they're missiles and and missiles have to be a certain way uh, it can only carry a certain payload and and basically um, a ninety thousand ton aircraft carrier can take a 500 pound explosive hit a nuclear weapon is something else so um, obviously this thing's been equipped with nuclear weapons because they're not going to because you know the the potential of a war with NATO or a strong naval um, type of force is there it's not like they can say hey you know so hey don't start the war yet we got to go back to port and load up the nukes so we so we can fight you guys no they're going to have them on there so now those things are however many there are and i would say there's probably at least two probably four those things are sitting at the bottom of the black sea and are they leaking were they damaged were they un completely undamaged are they so protected in those missile tubes that they had and everything else that somebody could theoretically go down there snag one and have a functioning nuclear weapon nobody really knows the answer because nobody's talking about it nobody's telling us but I'm here to tell you that hey that's a problem out there there's there are potentially rogue nuclear weapons that are free for the <laughs> the picking um, my, my guess is that they were probably damaged in whatever damage sank the ship I mean whatever sank the ship probably damaged those and they may have sunk deep enough so that you know once water gets in and, and and all this other stuff you know it's kind of all bets are off it's it's like you know there's been a few submarines over the years that have had nuclear torpedoes or missiles on them that have sunk and, and essentially you know they sink deep enough that it's they kind of crumple and yeah they may leak some radiation but in the totality of the sea it, it really doesn't contribute very much so that's probably what's happened but there's a potentiality that something else could be there um, and, and of course you know this is all in the backdrop of what has to be the most disturbing visuals of a president of the United States that I've ever seen uh, Mr. Joe Biden, you know, a man who stole an election and can't do the job, clearly. I, I mean, there's, there's just, there's just, 
you know, mounds of videotape of him, you know, turning around to shake hands and nobody's there. You saw that one on the podium. Um, there's the one where, you know, he's in the thing with Obama and nobody, nobody pays attention to him and he's an old man wandering around. The Easter Bunny leading him away. Um, it goes on and on back to where I think he was meeting the Pope last fall and, you know, the, the reports are that he kind of pooped himself. I mean, this is the leader of the free world. This is what we got. Um, this is a disaster. This is a plain disaster. Not only is this guy just incapable of of executing the office, but but it's getting worse. There is no there is no road where well maybe he's just maybe he's just not very good and he'll get better as the longer he's president the better he'll become. No, that's not it at all. He is he is declining precipitously and his speech, everything you see the garbled stuff that he says sometimes. This is all getting worse. And and the whole Democratic Party is kind of losing its marbles. Um, there are several, you know, uh, Democratic senators led by, you know, Dianne Feinstein, who they, they, I don't think they know where they are half the time. Same thing with Pel- Pelosi in the House. Does she even know where she is half the time? And when we see these people on TV and they appear to be relatively cogent, you know that's probably because they've slept 18 hours and they're somehow on some sort of I'm sure they're taking some sort of supplements or some sort of medication that that just kind of amps them up just enough so that they look like they know what they're doing for a short period of time and then they <laughs> they, they take them back and let them sleep or, or whatever it is they do some more I mean this is frightening our national government our national government has aged in the last 50 years, our national government has really aged, and there were a couple of, of exceptions. Barack Obama was a young man when he was elected. Uh, George W. Bush was a little bit older. Bill Clinton was kind of a young man, but the leadership in the Congress around them has gotten progressively older, just a lot older. The um, and, and now we've got these old candidates you know these these guys uh, don't think for a minute that Mitt Romney is not going to run again Mitt Romney 2024 is going to happen it's a mess because he's a complete dirtbag but um, you know that's going to happen I mean we're getting now that that these people in order to consolidate enough power to make a run um, are getting to be in their mid to late 70s which is not a really good sign we we really need some younger people and not these oldsters who are who are really uh, just not up to the job just not up to the job I mean our government has to be functioning um, Feinstein is not functioning I would argue that Pelosi is barely functioning and I would say that Biden is is not and the worst part about that is there's no even strong vice president to back up Biden. You have, you know, giggle britches. And the giggler, um, you know, she's probably young enough and she probably could be spoken to and reasoned with much better than, than Biden. But I don't think that gets you anything. I, I just don't think that she has the the raw intelligence to to make herself a you know, to ha- to be a president, to be a leader. If you if you look at Ka- Kamala Harris, 
the last thing you see when you see the way she acts, when she you see the way she does, when you see her performance on things like the border, the last thing you think of is leader. She is not a leader. She is, you know, a creature of the environment that empowers people based on gender, race, and and all kinds of other stuff that that is not leadership based or focused. So there you have it. She is a it's a mess. Our national government is a mess. And and you know what? The elections in at the end of this year, 2022, they they will fix part of it, but they won't fix all of it. The executive branch will still be in the hands of people who are incapable of running it. And if you think about that, there is no there is no corporation that would tolerate this. There, you know, if this were private sector, I mean, hey, there would, there would definitely be a house cleaning, you know, it just, it's the way it goes. I mean, you know, because there's too much at stake. I guess for our government, there's not too much at stake, although there really is. So that's the pathetic Biden administration. It's, it's absolutely disturbingly laughable, and a real crisis. It's a real crisis. You know, another thing I, I mentioned this last podcast. You know, we have the subway shooter, we had the subway shooter in New York, and then we had these, um, there was a shooting in Sacramento, and a shooting in, was it South Carolina? And the majority of victims are, are just, you know, kind of random, but the, including, and it's all races, there's nothing, there's nothing that shows that anyone was particularly targeted, although the guy in New York was a real vicious racist. But these criminals were black. And these stories just vanish. I mean, they, they're, they're on for like a day or two, and then they're gone. When the perpetrator does not fit the narrative of a Confederate flag-waving, Rhodesian camouflage-wearing white supremacist, which, you know, face it, those don't really exist very much. Um, then it's a disaster for them. They, they don't, they, they just basically um, ignore the story, which they have. Those stories have just fallen off the radar, completely fallen off the radar. Why is that? And who should be held accountable? The news media should be held accountable for that. This is journalistic malpractice. It is, it is terrible. It is absolutely terrible. And, and then you have the fake organizations. And, you know, a lot of people dance around this, but Black Lives Matter is fake because if a black person is perpetrating the violence on other black people, they don't care. And so we have black people who are being denied police services because of defund the police and because of this perception that's created that the police are anti-black and are hunting black people. This perception is hurting these communities which desperately need law and order, desperately need policing. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter. A perpetrator is a perpetrator. It doesn't matter what group they're from. Um, it, it's just, it's crime. And it's our great cities are descending even further into chaos because of this. It's really terrible. Um, I just think that it's, it's absolute crime. I couldn't imagine... I feel so sorry for the people who have to raise children in that. They're trying to raise children. Some of them are single parents because of other socio 
sociological factors, you know, and, um, you know, trying to raise your kids to be decent and good in an environment like that must be the worst challenge that you can you can think of, especially when you're scratching to make ends meet. And in the Biden economy, you know, $3.69 a gallon for gas, what do they think that does to single mothers who've got two kids? Um, what do they think rising food prices do? What do they think all that stuff is? It isn't just to keep the middle class, you know, fat, dumb, and happy. The reason you want these kind of low prices is because it helps the most needy and vulnerable people and uh, you know they failed there again what a pathetic group of people that are running the country pathetic okay now let's get on to some gun stuff which you know after 20 minutes <laughs> you you've heard the woes and problems of the of the world uh, I want to say though that, you know I'm just like everybody else I I see what I see on TV and in news clips and and um, you know pictures and I realize all of that can be I don't want to say manipulated but you know a lot of times when you see a news story the picture doesn't really match the story because they just kind of grab a picture usually to grab to to get your attention and there it is and you're looking at it but I do notice that a lot of the pictures I'm seeing of Ukraine that appear to be authentic we're starting to see a lot of a few more optical sights in there you know I had said earlier that hey I wasn't seeing any and that's that's still true you still see a lot of iron sights but now you see a few you know optical sights and some of them the ones I've seen have looked to be of um, maybe they're Ukrainian but Russian or Ukrainian manufacture you know kind of their um, their version of the aim point and you know they have they have versions of of the stuff we have they have some they have holographic sites and a few things and you're starting to see some of that and i imagine some of the western stuff is coming in um, but i still believe though that iron sights are going to rule the rule the day there um, because of the simplicity and and all those other things we've talked about but we are seeing some and i think what the russians are probably better equipped um, at least in that area uh, I think they're they're probably a little more better better equipped, but uh, we'll see how these um, we'll see how the the pictures um, effectively kind of uh, tell the story of who's got who's got what and maybe where it came from. So that's a that's a basically a thumbnail of what's been going on in the the big world. There's a lot of other things to talk about. There's you know all kinds of things that are happening and um, one of them is and this is actually a question you know what do you think of the uh, the announcement of the army's new squad automatic weapon and new rifle and you know we've been hearing we've been hearing those you know the 6.8 and the 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 kind of uh, bimetal casing and, and all the rest of this um, I'm, I'm still, I'm not dubious. I'm open-minded. I, I still think that, you know, you have to make a really good case to replace 5.56. And if it's performance against body armor and cover, well, that's a good case. And if 6.8 can deliver, that'll be interesting to see. The, uh, I guess there's a civilian version of the cartridge called the 277 Fury. There's even some rifles that are... Uh, you know the the semi-automatic only versions of these 
of this new rifle, the M5, I think they're they're probably going to call it. And um, we'll see how it is. I myself am not really that interested. I, I think my fear with it is that, and, and this has to be borne out, I, I don't know this, but my, my initial impression would be that it's going to be heavier recoil than 5.56 and it's going to be lighter than 7.62 NATO. So it's neither fish nor fowl. And you know, you have to, um, you have to look at, and I'll start with 7.62 NATO. 7.62 NATO is the greatest battle rifle cartridge that ever was. I mean, it's just it, without doubt. And thus, it's also the greatest uh, general purpose machine gun cartridge that ever was. Um, it's shorter than the 30-06 by, got like 12, uh, yeah, like 12 millimeters. And it delivers effectively the same performance. Uh, it's a very efficient cartridge. It was designed for automatic weapons. And it's powerful. It's deadly accurate. Uh, it's it was actually a very a great cartridge and a great um, great piece of military engineering. Unfortunately, it came out in an age where should have been going towards intermediate cartridges. <laughs> you know, it just sort of it was like you take the you know your GPS tells you to turn right and you turn left and then you go why am I lost? Well, because you took a wrong turn and where we should have gone was was somewhere else but we wound up with that and for what it is and what it was designed to do it's it's one of the greatest cartridge military cartridges of all time without doubt uh 556 uh the same way i noticed that they one of the things they were touting as well the the new m5 will be more accurate and more lethal and i'm like that's good those are good things I'm just thinking, though, that if you wanted a more lethal 5.56, you could go back to 55 grain bullets because those were very lethal. You could also go to longer barrels. 20-inch barrels are not a, a hindrance. Uh, my, in my heart of hearts, the only criticism I have of the M4 is I, I just don't really care for it as a general issue infantry rifle. I understand why they did it. And I understand it has some great advantages. I'm just not sure that I like 16-inch barrels. Um, you know, that, that, that platform was designed with a 20-inch barrel, and it works very, very well with it. And, um, you know, that would have been a great, a great advantage to keep. That would have been a great advantage to, to have that. But we'll see. You know, we'll see how these new ones work. Um, I, I have high hopes because I want, I want the boys to have the best. Uh, boys and girls to have the best, but we'll we'll see how this stuff really works out. So to kind of go into the uh, questions and answers, uh, this leads us into our first one. With the potential adoption of the 6.8, and I think it's more than potential at this point, but we'll leave it at that. Is the 5.56 still a success and a viable cartridge? And I would say you know, 5.56 never scratched the itch of the 30 caliber guys or of the long-range target shooters. It, it sort of did. It, it actually displaced the 7.62 NATO, you know, like 25, 30 years ago. But it, it, it never really caught them the, the way that the other cartridges that were previous had. So 
and, and it took special loads too. I mean, you know, the, the high power loads were the, you know, 075 and 77 grain bullets. It, it took a lot of refinement to get it to where it was really better. And, and it was, it was. So 556 is still a success. I would use it unreservedly in, in hostile places. Um, it's an excellent cartridge and it's going to be around forever and everybody worth their salt has adopted it. Well, now whether, whether the leap to 6.8 will make a difference, I don't know. Um, we'll see how this, how this shakes out, but yes, it's still very successful. And my comments on the 762 NATO are very, are still the, the same. It's very successful. Maybe the greatest battle rifle cartridge there ever was, but it came out after the age of the battle rifle was over. So uh, that's it. But we'll see what happens. I don't think more countries will be adopting 5.56. I think it reached its saturation point probably some years ago. And uh, I think you'll see if 6.8 makes it and has the killing potential, um, then, then you'll see other countries gradually transition to it. It'll be interesting to see how the U.S. military handles it because, you know, it's, it's the 5.56 NATO. So it is NATO cartridge. And unlike uh, 5.56, which could be adopted to AK platforms, I don't know that this 6.8 will. So if you're a country like Poland and you have 5.56 AKs, you have to get a new cartridge and a new rifle which they may not want to do. I mean, they, they may not wish to do that. That's just too expensive. And especially if, if they think that there's more, going to be more aggression in that part of the world, um, they're probably going to be producing, increasing their production of what they're already using as opposed to uh, shift to something new. That's what killed off, you know, a couple of cartridges. Uh, the 7.35 Carcano was killed off because Italy was in a war. Um, couldn't they couldn't convert it just didn't make logistical sense in the first world war the um the pattern 13 rifle in 276 you know pattern 13 1913 well 1914 they're in a war they just had to give up on it you know it just it just couldn't do it so it'll be interesting to see if nato countries which are are probably very nervous right now um and they and and some of these ones like bulgaria and romania they've and poland too They've just kind of switched to 5.56. I don't know that they really want to change. They may buy some as a supplement for special operations forces or something else, but um, use a 6.8 for that. But I don't know that they're going to want to change their general, their service rifles um, over again. That seems like a lot of expense in a short period of time. Okay, next question. What could Kel... <laughs> this, this, is, this is people giving me a hard time over Keltec. What could Keltec do to make the sub 2000 better for use in the Ukraine? Um, you know, I will I will stop making the jokes that they should melt them down, or maybe maybe the Ukrainian Navy needs boat anchors. What a yeah, plastic boat anchors. Um, I don't know. Uh, what I would say 
is that if you wanted that weapon to be useful in an AK world where the Russians have AKs and the it looks like the uh, um, there's no shortage real shortage of AKs in the uh, Ukraine because they were handing them out to people from their police stations and army bases so they must have plenty of them so in that in that environment what good is a semi-automatic pistol caliber carbine and what I would say is if they really wanted to make it useful and it's way too late for it but I would make it in select fire you know figure out how to do that and I would also chamber it I don't know what the ones that went over there were chambered for I assume nine millimeter because that would make sense but as we all know things in the real world don't make sense you know the other caliber it comes in is 40 Smith & Wesson which would be even worse can you imagine being a Ukrainian and having a 40 Smith & Wesson semi-automatic Keltec sub 2000 yeah somebody hands it to you hey here's your rifle well where's the ammo well I don't know where are the extra magazines well I don't know so if they had actually chambered it to 762 by 25 there would have been a couple of advantages number one that kind of ammunition is floating around that region of the world pretty freely so you could probably get some of the ammo um, it's a very flat shooting cartridge so you're gonna have a little extended range with it so maybe hitting you know let's just let's just be let's just be super generous and say maybe instead of a 50 yard weapon you have a hundred yard weapon you know maybe uh, maybe close up the 762 by 25 has got better uh, performance against body armor yeah you know uh, and it shouldn't be that hard to make but you know it's at this point it's it's all moot because that you couldn't really do that but if you wanted to take a if you wanted to design a inexpensive easy to make weapon what would it look like well it would look like that you know it would look like something they could get ammo for something that would have a usable range and something that would do well against body armor so probably look like that that's what they would have to do uh already kind of talked about this the army what do you think of the army's new squad automatic weapon and rifle you know i don't know haven't seen them don't know my my fear is that with every emerging weapon system there's always some problems even with m17 and m18 pistols um we had problems and of course i think that uh you know you could you could say that if these things are completely trouble free that there will be uh it will be a miracle my my guess is that they will take them on arctic exercises and desert exercises and jungle exercises and in one or maybe a couple of those environments they may they may have a problem they may say hey we've identified this is a problem it's got to be fixed either with the gun or with the ammo uh, just my just my guess i'm hoping everything goes well but we'll see how that how that happens okay the next question why was the remington rolling block a popular military rifle when better designs were around uh, that's that's very easy to answer uh, it's because it was available and it didn't cost it cost about what a regular rifle would be so if you wanted something like say you're in the 1870s and, and you know the rolling block came in late 1860s 1870s hey there's some good designs out there there's some you know the Germans had the uh, Gewehr 71 um, there were some there were some other other you know pretty innovative things out there 
and there were some single shots so when it when it came up against the single shots hey the rolling block is right in there you know it's as good as anything else um, when you start getting in the 1880s and 1890s of course you're getting repeating rifles and you know of course the rolling block is is old technology by then and it's really not keeping up very well but if you put it in seven millimeter Spanish Mauser which they did hey you can sell a bunch of those to South American countries that hey you can either you can either get these today or you can be on a waiting list for Mausers for a few years you know a lot of times they didn't have a choice they, they weren't producing them themselves they were just buying off the shelf and these were on the shelf so that's why you see a lot of seven millimeter Mausers that came out of uh, Central and South America um, you know very good rifle very serviceable and in the kind of the harsh climates of you think of Central America being you know pretty harsh climate for weapons hey they, they still worked you know another thing which is which is actually kind of diabolical but it's it it actually makes sense you know the fact of the matter is if one of your rifles gets captured by the you know the bandits or the bad guys or the revolutionaries okay great they got a single shot rifle okay they don't have a nice magazine fed Mauser either you know something like an 1889 or 1891 or 1893 or some copy thereof you know they they have a kind of a second-rate weapon and it's also a weapon that you can use to arm auxiliaries with and everything else so they have weapons and if there's enough of them they can put up they can put up decent firepower but you're not losing frontline weapons you know your most advanced small arms to the people you're fighting if if uh, happen to lose a battle so I think that's another reason that the rolling block was around and the swan song of the military rolling block was World War one the French actually bought some in I'm thinking 1915 you know the the war would just started you know war starts August 1914 1915 hey the French need weapons they're buying them like crazy in eight millimeter label and you know they're not they're not putting them up in the trenches they are in fact giving them to like artillery crews you know the long range artillery crews people who need to be armed but don't need the best you know and and that was a a very common practice with kind of obsolete obsolescent weapons in world war one is that uh you know the rear echelon troops would get these things and that way you could send more of the uh, better weapons up front so yeah that's why the rolling block was used okay next question you talk about how good revolvers are but they have limited capacity that is true revolvers are very good and they do have limited capacity are speed loaders a way to increase firepower well it depends what you think firepower is if you think firepower is just more rounds that's that's fine I always kind of look at firepower as also being a function of the power of the cartridge and revolvers usually have you know you can have more powerful cartridges you can have 357 magnum 41 magnum 40 you know all those all those great calibers but I've never found a speed loader that's that's worth anything uh, most of them are garbage most of them make the people using the revolvers feel good and unless you devote you unless you either buy some very custom high-end ones and and there are some revolver guys who who put in the hours and hours and hours of practice to really be able to use one um 
you know, unless you do that, they're 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 just not very good. I mean, the HKS ones that everybody has, and I've got a bunch of them. I admit it, I got a bunch of them. I just kind of use them to carry extra revolver rounds, because you know what? They are hard. When you eject the empties and you stick that in, they always the, the cartridges in them wiggle around a little bit, and getting them lined up with the chambers. You know, is it better than putting them in one at a time or having a fistful of them and trying to load it? Yeah, probably is. But, you know, they're not this great thing that makes the revolver somehow the equal of a magazine-fed semi-automatic pistol. They just don't do it. So uh, those things are, are, are pretty pretty much junky. The only ones I've seen that ever really do work are the old uh, moon clips and the full moon clip, which was actually kind of like a 1970s, 80s invention, is the full moon clip for the 1917 revolver. And they also did, it's, it's also, these things are made for auto pistol cartridges in revolvers. So like 38 Super, 9mm, uh, and 45 ACP, of course. Um, you know, the full moon clip is, is, is probably the best speed loader there is for a revolver. You just, you, you pop the old one out. And that's easy. You do, usually those things don't hang up. You, they pop out really easy. And the new ones go in a lot easier. There's nothing to twist, nothing to, you know, toss away or anything. They just go in. You close the cylinder. They're not as good as, say, uh, you could compare it to, hey, you got a 1911, you got a 1917 revolver in, or a 45 ACP revolver. Hey, guess what? You can load that 1911 a bit faster but the revolver keeps up reasonably well not perfect and not not neck and neck but it keeps up reasonably well the other ones are, are junk the speed strips you know uh, what I'm saying is even if you get good at using those on the range when you get in a tense situation sometimes your motor skills aren't what you think they are <laughs> aren't you what they aren't what you want you know your motor skills kind of kind of go and all of a sudden you know, the last thing you need to be is fumbling with those things. That's why I think that, you know, they, they've really missed a bet with um, full moon clip revolvers for serious purposes. Um, now, saying that, am I going to go trade away the revolvers I have because they don't take full moon clips? And, and the answer is no, especially as a armed citizen or homeowner doing, doing home defense. Um, I don't know. I have no problem with the revolver's capacity. I think it's a good deal. So I don't think it's a problem at all. So there you go. That's what I think about that. That's They really aren't worth a hoot unless you have the full moon clips. Um, and if you don't get the full moon clips, the half moon clips are not nearly as good, but they're probably better than the like the HKS speed loaders and all that. Uh, some of the really high-end ones that the competitive shooters use, I, I've never used those. I think they they're probably a little they're probably better than the HKS. That's why they exist. But I've never used them, and I've never really thought a lot of them. Uh, you know, a lot of those things are super expensive too. They they uh, they run into some money. So that's what I think about those. Okay, have you seen Moisens in the Ukraine? And there I said the Ukraine again. It's actually the the question was sent to me in Ukraine. So okay, in Ukraine, yeah, I've seen I've seen some pictures of some guys who are obviously like border guards with Poland and NATO and all that, or or some some auxiliary thing, and they had Moisens. 
um, you know, clearly it's 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 a weapon and it and it's used. And uh, we actually even talked a little bit about it earlier. Uh, we, I think the uh, last podcast we talked about, uh, you know, there were some guys with Moisen snipers, and I mean, you know, hey, um, if that's all you got, that's what you use. And uh, it's you know it's a good a good dependable sturdy rifle. Moisen has gotten a lot of trash talked about it here in the states. A lot of trash. People do not appreciate how good of a rifle that is for what it's designed for which is what they're using it for now you're in serious combat you're not shooting long-range targets you're not doing a lot of these things that we expect rifles to do but they do work and they do work really well but they do have the the foibles of any 1890s design and here we are 130 year design 130 year old design the only time I think that ever happened before was, didn't they use the brown best for like, yeah, like a hundred years or something? The British used the brown best for a hundred years. So, um, you know, this is a this is a 130-year-old design, and uh, it's still able to do now what it was able to do in 1891. Unfortunately, the the competing technology is, is advanced, so that is, that is not going to be your first choice but it's still out there it could still work okay would you buy an Anderson AR-15 okay right now I would not simply because I don't need an AR-15 so I have to approach this question from a theoretical which is if I did not have an AR-15 today and I wanted an AR-15 would I buy an Anderson and of course there's other factors there too if I'm on a limited budget or I have to watch my money or I have to sit there and say I only have a certain amount of money to spend and I need to buy ammo too uh, I, I would tell you that I'm a guy who I believe in I don't believe in cheap guns but I believe in value guns and there were a lot of guns over the years that have had a lot of value um, and that's getting harder and harder to find and I'll give you an example um, the SIG P210 target is outstanding value because it will shoot like a gun that costs three or even four times as much. It will. It just will. Um, is it perfect? Well, no. Nothing is. But it shoots well above what you pay for it. That is the value. Uh, a lot of Savage rifles are the same way. They turn in a performance that is unexpected for some something in their price point. Uh, Athlon scopes, and there are some other scopes out there too. But there are a lot of there are a lot of scopes now that cost between three hundred and five hundred dollars that uh, um, really hit above their weight. You know, they they really deliver performance that you would expect from something that costs twice or maybe even three times as much. It's just the way it is. Um, there are certain things out there that are still of value, but you really have to know what you're doing, and you have to look at them, and you have to, you know, do your research, and and hopefully even get a chance to use them before you make your decision. And Anderson is that same way. Um, they produce a decent AR-15, and I'm willing to tell you. I, I do believe that Anderson probably produces parts for other people, 
So there are Anderson parts in other AR-15s that, that people might not think that there are Anderson parts in. But no, I think they're, they're absolutely, you know, for what you want an AR-15 for, you know, is it a good deal? Well, it depends on the use. If, if you want a standard military style, M4 style gun, I think Anderson is fine. You know, it's, it's going to be fine. Is it, is it going to, you know, it's, it's like the difference. It's kind of like the Ford Taurus and a BMW. People look at the Taurus and say, eh, it's, it's a Taurus. It doesn't have the fancy BMW wheel on the front and, and everything else. But the Taurus will get the job done. And the same thing with the Anderson. It'll get the job done. I tend to look more at features than I do sometimes markings. And, uh, you know, I, there are certain things I like. I like chrome-lined barrels. I, I don't require them, but I like them. Uh, there's, you know, they're just fit and finish deals on there that, that I like. There's, you know, there's just the configuration. Are they, did, you know, are there heat shields in the hand guards or did they buy some total cheapo thing that doesn't have them? You know, I, I tend to look at those. Is the trigger serviceable? Doesn't have to be a match trigger. Is it just serviceable like a USGI mil spec trigger? Um, you know, that those are kind of the features I look for. Do, does... You know, and you can tell by looking at a gun if it's quality or, you know, if it has some quality to it or not. And you should always buy quality, but that doesn't mean, but the quality is not always reflected in the price tag. And I will say that, you know, and I've, I've, I've been kind of chided for this, but, you know, really what you're buying with some of the top end ARs is you're, you're getting quality control and you're probably getting some, you know, expert fitting of parts which if that's important to you then you should go for it but for you know the common user the guy who wants an AR15 because he needs a rifle that has a 30 shot capacity magazine and can defend himself and and uh, uh, needs to do all the things that we we kind of expect the the uh, garden variety AR to do I think Anderson is a a fine choice I don't see I don't have any problem with it um, you know there's Timex and there's Rolex and you know what? I don't own a Rolex, but there's a couple Timexes floating around here someplace. So there you go. Uh, what antique or obsolete weapon would you not be surprised to see in the Ukraine conflict? Uh, that's interesting. Well, I've already seen. Let me let me go by with what I've already seen. I think I've already seen some Takarev pistols. I'm not really sure. I, I mean, it's not like they're they're brandishing them in front of the camera, but I think I've seen Takarev pistols. I'm I'm sure that they must have Makarov pistols. I did see um, a couple places uh, some of the old Maxim, the World War II Soviet Maxim machine guns. Um, you can tell them because they have the great big uh, opening on the top of the barrel jacket, so you can put in chunks of ice if if it gets that cold. Um, I've seen so I've seen the World War II machine guns. Um, I've seen SVT 40s. I saw a picture where somebody had SVT 40s. So I, I would not be surprised to see any of that World War II Soviet stuff. And and up to now, I would not be surprised to see. Um, going back, what World War II things would I not think I would see? I don't think you'll see any Sturmgewehrs. 
because the ammunition is just going to be too hard to get. Anything that's got hard to get ammunition, um, you're not going to see, or there's just going to be too few of. And there's probably just too few of the Sturmgewehrs. And a few in the museums, but you know that's they're not going to go around looking for the the uh, thing. And it's too much like the AK, so you're not going to see that. So really, what you're going to see is maybe handguns, and that could be anything, um, anything from World War II on. You're you're probably going to see there, if they if they even want to really use them. I don't really think that handguns are, are going to be. They don't seem to be emphasizing them. Um, and any World War II or and up to now gun is going to be better than anything that Keltec could give them. So I think they'll be snagging those. Uh, going back farther. Um, I don't, I don't know about eight millimeter Mauser rifles, you know, from World War One or World War Two. You know, it always seems to me there could be. You know, with the British Home Guard, the one of the first thing they did was when you know because they had guys who had pitchforks and and you know, lances basically, you know, sharp big long sharpened sticks. They went to all the museums and took everything useful out of there. And I think Ukrainians have probably done the same thing. So I would not be surprised if you saw, and I would think that the, the, you know, I'll, I'll go out on a limb. I'll say that I would not be surprised to see a few Chauches there, as, as horrible as they are. Because you can still get 8mm LaBelle ammo. It's actually made, you know, in Europe. You can still get it. Um, the Chauches, you know, do you have, if you, as long as you got magazines... You know, and that's usually Achilles' heel. The Achilles' heel is, have these weapons that are in museums been be deactivated to the point where they can't be brought back? It's just not worth it. You know, if you got a guy, he needs to be repairing, you know, the guns people are using and not not a project of trying to restore a Chauche to shooting, uh, <laughs> to shooting, you know, form. So... But I would not be surprised if you see some Chauches. I would not be surprised to see a few Lewis guns because you can still get 303 British. Um, I would not be surprised. I, I just don't think that there is that many more. I think you're just going to see a lot of World War II Soviet stuff because that's going to come out of museums too. I think you're going to see just so much more of that. But you could see... You could see a Lewis gun. You could see some Chauches, a Shosho, they call them. You could see those. Um, and and I, I just don't think you'd see anything U.S. I just don't think you'd see BARs or anything. I, you wouldn't see any of that. That, just, that part of the world, those weapons just did not get there. And if they did, it's a single museum display, and, and they're not going to find 30-06. Um and there's no real history of gun ownership there so you're not gonna see a lot of hunting rifles you're not gonna see a lot of people with you know hey granddad's gun from the Great War or anything you're not gonna see a lot of that so you know they're all gonna come from institutions but I'm just trying to think of any other sources uh, there might be some government arsenals I think they, they probably sold out most of it but if not all of it but you could see some p38s Lugers uh, Anything nine millimeter is probably a good bet because they can they can get the ammunition there probably. I did see some of them had PPSHs, so they you know you know those are around. But I would not be surprised to see Luger's P38s if people want handguns. I just don't think there's a big emphasis on handguns there. Um, 
but you might see something really old pop up. A chow che would be, wouldn't that be cool to see like a policeman in the, you know, western part of the country is, <laughs> he found a chow che in the uh, um, local museum and it still works. Maybe, maybe, you know, and then you have to look, maybe there's a few old MG0815s or MG08s or something, you know, 8mm Mauser guns, maybe there's a few of those that were taken as, as trophies, huh? I would not be surprised to see something like that, but it would be pretty much a one-off, and uh, yeah, it would be a, it would be a real it'd be a real treat to see something like that. So that would not surprise me. Okay, and here is our last question: Do you think the war in the Ukraine will change sniping? Um, you know, actually, I I honestly do as I think my way through this, I actually think that the emphasis on extended long range will evaporate because it's not Afghanistan where there were a lot of extended long range shots from one mountaintop to another. And and also the, the climate is different. In Afghanistan, the air is very thin, so you have less wind resist, air, air resistance and it's very dry so it, that's much more conducive to long-range shooting than the kind of the wet mushy environment that you're gonna have in the Ukraine um, and I realize it's not wet and mushy the whole year round but you kinda get what I'm saying I'm also saying there's there's a lot more forest and built-up areas so I don't know if there's gonna be a lot of opportunities and and why would you you know I mean um, you know something that's 2500 yards away why are you really gonna waste resources on that when there's other things that are obviously more pressing so I think that the the DMR what we call DMRs which are in point of fact sniper rifles will come back I think the Russians probably had it right in World War two that basically a rifle capable of the five maybe 600 yard hit with a simple to use reasonable quality optic I think that is probably going to come back and they'll find that that's a lot more useful than say a 338 Lapua Magnum made by you know Lords of the Universe gun company that's all tacticooled and you know all tacticooled out um, I think something simpler and maybe something I'm not even sure the bolt actions would really I, I think that follow-up shots and the ability to defend yourself is gonna be and the the ability to suppress a target with say a 10 or maybe even a 20 shot magazine so I would say that I would say that a good optic on maybe an accurized battle rifle or a rifle that's that's been you know designed up but has a lot of battle rifle characteristics I think that's going to be a very, very good and useful weapon in that particular environment. And of course, everybody around the world will rush to buy those. And then the next war will be in the desert where, the, where they'll want the long range ones again. <laughs> but hopefully they won't, they won't throw away the long range ones they have. But yeah, I think that that's it. And I think 
and, and it'll be the, the always thing that's interesting to me is how the police mirror the military and you might see you know like right now you see a lot of police with the 338 Lapua Magnum and they talk about these long shots and all that when it seems to me when you actually look at the scenarios police snipers shoot at a lot shorter distances so you know maybe a faster firing simpler to use um, piece of equipment might be very very might be very very advantageous for them so they may go kind of go back to something else so we'll see I'm no expert on what the police have but I do know that they do have some longer range stuff and even some Barrett's things like that I just don't think they're going to be using those very much I think they bought them because the military had them and they said hey these things really have a capability but does that capability match their mission sets and also the skills of their people you got to you got to put a lot of time into training so um and it goes back to you know the 50 cal is not as cool as it is and all the rest of it it's not a lot of fun to shoot so is it really going to be a deal we'll see well that's it for this edition of old school guns episode number 136 and again if you have any questions or comments you can leave them on podbean in the comments section or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com that is kbmakel at aol.com and until next time this is old school guns out <laughs>